Two great philosophers of the 20th century once penned these words. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. Nothing, no one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love, love is all you need. Now these two philosophers, they went by the names of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And thanks to the legacy of their work, my five-year-old son, Knox, asked me a couple months ago, Dad, is love all you need? I think I answered him by telling him that, uh, no, no, son, Jesus is all you need. But if I could go back to this question and that moment, I would have answered a little bit differently in light of the passage we're going to be looking at together. A few weeks back, we began a journey through John's letters. One of the great things about John's writing is that he, he tells us why he writes. And in this letter, he gives various reasons. But one of the primary reasons is found in 1 John 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes so that we can know we have eternal life, so that we can know we have life in Christ, know that we are saved. There's a word that's used for this idea. That word is assurance. The doctrine of assurance gives us confidence in our salvation. This is why John writes. Now to help us know whether or not we have eternal life, John begins by laying laying out the foundation for our faith. And he starts with with telling us that it's a historic reality. It's something that we've we've seen and we've heard and we've we've touched, we've we've looked upon because God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a historic reality. This is one one leg of the foundation. The other leg is that that the revelation of God is our ultimate reality. It's the truth upon which everything else stands. God is light, we read in verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. Then with this foundation laid, John moves to application of this reality to our lives. How might we know that we are in Christ? He lays out how we can have assurance through the rest of this book. The late British theologian John Stott, he uses the idea of three tests that John goes to again and again. Stott says the rest of the letter, so beginning in chapter 2 all the way through the end, contains three successively elaborate expositions and applications of these three tests. So we'll be coming to these tests again and again over the next several weeks. Now I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear the word tests. Maybe your palms start to get a little sweaty and your heart starts beating a little faster. Or maybe you confidently think of that last test you took that you just aced. Or maybe you're, you don't even remember the last time you took a test, which I know that applies to some of you in this room. But when John brings up these tests, don't see them as a negative. We should view them with gratefulness. Tests help to affirm what's already there. That's what tests are supposed to do, affirm what is already there. These tests are not about us figuring out how to game the system, about how to cheat our way to success. These tests are meant to comfort, to encourage, and to challenge us. Now, the first test John gives we looked at last week. Larry unpacked for us in 1 John 2, 5 through 6, this moral test, a moral test. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is how we can know that we are in Christ. We obey him. We walk in obedience to God. So this is the first test, a moral test. 
The second test that we're going to look at today is a social test. Being in Christ has implications with how we live with others. Stated another way, we can know whether we are in Christ based on how we love others. Now the third and final test that we're going to come to in later weeks is a a doctrinal test. This is a test about what we believe about Christ. We will come to this test as soon as we come to the end of John's second chapter. So John began chapter 2 with this moral test. If you love him, you will obey him. If you're in Christ, you can know that you're in Christ by the way you, you love and obey his commands. So it's a very general call to obedience. Now here, he, he moves to a more specific application of that. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that the final proof of any man can have of the fact that he is a Christian is that he keeps and delights in keeping and goes on keeping the commandments of the Lord. So we can know that we know him if we obey him. But here in verse 7, we go from this broad call to obedience to a specific command, a particular example of obedience. It's a command that affects how we relate to others. It's this social test. John holds forth that we can know who we are by what we do. Knowing isn't all we need. Knowing isn't enough. This knowledge must translate into action. So are you in Christ? John asks, do you love others? In one sense, those British philosophers, they, they were onto something. Those Beatles, they were onto something. You do need love. Well, that's not all you need. You have to have it. So let's read together the Word of God in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. This is the Word of God. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you that we can know you through your word, and we can know how we are to live through your word. Pray that you would give us hearts that are, are soft to be conformed to your word, minds that are, that are eager to obey your word. And Lord, thank you that, that we can gather together, young and old, this morning and sit under your word. You are our divine authority, and particularly for the young ones in our midst, Lord, we pray that you would, you would soften their hearts to the truth of the gospel, work salvation in them, even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the big idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is this. Assurance comes when you love others as Christ has loved you. Assurance comes when you love others as Christ has loved you. We love others as Christ has loved us. This passage asks us, do you love others? How we answer this question is critical in whether or not we are in Christ. Loving others as Christ has loved us gives us proof that we are in Christ. So assurance comes when you love others as Christ has loved you. John began his letter talking about this foundation of our faith. But that faith, it must be expressed in our bodies if it is to be true faith. It must shape our minds, but it must also direct our feet and our hands in how we live. 
We must walk as he walked, as John wrote in verse 6. Now we're going to navigate our passage looking at two simple points. Number one is going to be knowing the command, verses 7 and 8. Number two is going to be doing the command, verses 9 and 11. Knowing and doing. So first, knowing the command in verse 7 and 8. Now at the time of John's writing, there was a false teaching going on in the church. Some were saying that you needed some special knowledge, some new information to have true life. In our day, maybe that would come through the form of of a diet or a type of meditation. I mean, there's these ideas that, oh, we just need a little bit more of this, and then you'll have happiness and you'll have peace. But John writes to help true Christians guard against these lies. John begins chapter 2 by saying that we can know that we know him if we obey God. Now he moves to this specific expression of obedience, a specific command that we must follow. We are to love others. We can know that we know him if we love others. We can know that we know him if we love others. This is the command that we are given, love one another. This, this command, this ideal of love, really oozed out of John. It was like his go-to theme. It's what he talked about whenever he could. Now, everyone has an idea or a topic that they get excited about, and we'll go on and on about. They'll never exhaust talking about. For Larry, that go-to theme might be golf. For me, it might be food. For John, it was love, loving one another. There's a story about John that was told by an early church father, Jerome, who lived in the fourth century. The story goes that when John was old and unable to preach, he would be carried into the church on a chair, and he would simply say to the congregation, love one another, love one another. When the church would ask why he would say this, John would respond, because it's the Lord's commandment, and if you do this, it is everything. This, this theme, loving one another, it just it poured forth from John. And we see it right away in this passage. In verse 7, he writes, beloved, beloved. Notice how he addresses his readers here. He'll do this again and again in this letter. Beloved. Some translations say this is simply dear friends. But the biblical reality is far deeper than this. Beloved is a a deep expression of affection that not only highlights John's love for his readers, but also reminds them of God's love for them. They are those who are loved. They're loved by John, and they are loved by God. So John writes in verse 7, beloved. Then he goes on, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. John is saying, you know this command. And I'm standing up here preaching this morning saying, you know this command. You've heard it again and again. It's what I speak to you again and again. Notice too that John doesn't even say what the commandment is. It's just implied. But clearly there's no question. Nobody's wondering what is he talking about. Love one another. And this is an old commandment. It's a historic commandment. Now not only would these believers have heard this when they first heard the gospel, which John is no doubt implying, but it would have run even deeper than that. It's older than that. It's older than them first hearing the gospel. It goes back to the teaching of Jesus. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of the law is in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, he provides two. First, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus goes on. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there is no commandment greater than these. On these depend the law and the prophets. But notice too, so Jesus says that these commandments, they sum up the law and the prophets. 
But they're older than, than Jesus saying these in his day. The first is found in Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second is found all the way back in the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. There the reader comes across what's known as the, the holiness code. These are the rules Israel must follow if they are to be holy before God. And in Leviticus 19, verse 18, Moses writes this. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great and old commandment. But its oldness doesn't end there. It's part of the created order. In the garden, God created humanity. Male and female, he created them to to coexist together, to complement one another, to come alongside one another, to love one another. Loving one another was part of God's plan from the very beginning. And it was part of God's plan from the very beginning because love is a reflection of the character of God. We believe in one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And throughout all of eternity, there has been a fellowship within the Trinity that, that pours forth with, with love for one another. So this love that God has for the persons of the Godhead, it pours out in creation. And then it goes on down to God's people. And then Jesus gives this as, as the command that sums up all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others. This is an old command. But then John goes on in verse 8. He says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Now, you've heard that John was pretty old when he was writing this. And you may be thinking, oh, this is one of those moments where we see John's age coming through. Here goes old John. I'm not writing anything new, but I'm writing something new. It's old, but it's new. It sounds like he's almost confused. But John is not like your parent or your grandparent or crazy uncle who's starting to lose it a little bit. John is making a crucial theological point for us here. While this command is old and you know it, it's also new. Let me explain. Here, John has in mind the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. He gathers in the upper room with his disciples in, in the night before he goes to the cross. And if you remember in John 13, which we looked at about a year and a half ago, he begins that evening by washing his disciples' feet. Here is the God-man, the Word made flesh, the one in whom, Paul writes, all things hold together. And he's bent over washing filthy feet. When Jesus finishes, he explains to the disciples that if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then in John 13, 34, John says this. I mean, Jesus says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And this is what's new about it. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus comes and gives a new command. Notice that it is a lot like the old command, love your neighbor as yourself, love one another, but it goes far, far deeper. Love others as I have loved you. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes, and he doesn't just get rid of what God has commanded of us. He comes and embodies it. He fully lives out God's commands. He fully lives out love for God and love for others. Jesus comes and reaffirms and exemplifies these commands. He comes and says, you thought it was like this, but you didn't know the half of it. Think with me about four ways 
that Jesus exemplifies love. First, Jesus loved everyone. Jesus loved everyone. As we read the Gospels, we see Jesus, we see him love his friends, people like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. We see Jesus love his disciples. John, the writer of this letter, he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see Jesus as he hangs on the cross, as he's dying on the cross, concerned about the care of his mother, loving mother to make sure she is cared for. But we even see Jesus love those who were against him. In Luke 19, he weeps over Jerusalem, a city that was hostile to him. While he's being crucified, he cries out to God to have mercy on his executioners. No one loved as Jesus loved. So Jesus loved everyone, but Jesus, second, also loved humbly. Jesus exemplifies love by loving humbly. And we saw this just a moment ago in John 13. Paul also talks about this in Philippians 2 when he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Jesus exemplified love by loving humbly. So he loved everyone. He loved humbly. Third, Jesus loved sacrificially. Paul writes in Romans 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, while we were weak at the right right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself up so that we might have life. He suffered as the righteous one for those who were unrighteous. So that as Peter writes, he might bring us to God. No one loved as Jesus loved. So he loved everyone. He loved humbly. He loved sacrificially. Fourth, Jesus loved powerfully. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. His love gives life. The love God shows us in Jesus is love that has power to make dead people alive. His love is powerful. No one loved as Jesus loved. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of Jesus. This is the love that is true in him, as John says. But then he goes on. He says, and it is true in you. It is true in him, and it is true in you. This is the love that we, brothers and sisters, we are to walk in. If you are in Christ, you have the same opportunity to love everyone, to love humbly, to love sacrificially, to love powerfully. Now, how can this be? Because we are no longer walking in darkness. You see, as John writes, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Because Jesus came, Jesus, the light of the world, came in the flesh, the light shines, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John Calvin writes this, Since Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has shone, while before there was only dim light, we have the perfect radiance of divine truth, like the wanted brilliance of midday. This is the light that we have. This is the light that shines in us through Christ. Thanks be to God for this revelation. 
But John doesn't stop there. He's just given us something of the nature of this command. As one commentator says, it's old yet current, new but true. Now that he's shown how we know this command, he goes on to give us the social test. Do we do the command? So number two, doing the command in verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11. Now in these verses, John provides a contrast between two characters, the lover and the hater, the one who walks in darkness and the one who walks in the light. Now two quick notes as we look at these characters. First, you'll see this word brother come up again and again. This word brother refers to to all people, brother and sister. It's not gender specific, so read it as such. Second, I want you to notice the word hate. Now, it can be easy to see that word and just think of maliciousness and, and hate that wants to destroy other people. But this is not a raging hate that only seeks death and destruction. Certainly, it includes that, but it also has in mind a softer form of hate. It's simply not loving. So when we talk about hate, don't just think about anger. Think about selfishness. Think about slander. Think about being unkind to others. As one commentator writes, failure to love as Christ commands and enables is tantamount to hating. Failure to love as Christ commands is the same as hating. We either love and die to ourselves, or we put our own self at the center of all things and are ruled by hate. So now with these two things in mind, let me introduce you to these these two characters. Now in verse 9, John introduces us to the hater. The hater, he doesn't know reality. He thinks that he walks in the light while he walks in the darkness. That's what John writes in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But we see John build on this idea again in verse 11. He writes, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And we see here something of a progression. Not only does he walk in darkness, he doesn't even know where he's going. He faces darkness both outside of himself and within himself. Notice that he can't even see. He's blind. Blindness isn't just being unable to see, which I think is how we normally think of it. It's really being unable to see clearly. You can't see straight. For me, it's a, I understand this, I'm legally blind in my right eye. So if I cover my left eye, everything's just kind of blurry. I really can't make much out of anything. Hatred is like this. When you hate, you can't see straight. You can't make sense out of reality. Reality is distorted. John Stott writes this. He says, hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already jaundiced. It's messed up by our hatred. John contrasts this with this with love. Stott continues, it's love which sees straight. It's love which thinks clearly and makes us balanced in our outlook, judgments, and our conduct. So let's look now at our second character in verse 10, the lover. Notice how John places the lover at the center of these three verses. He talks about the hater in verse 9 and the hater in verse 11. And then right between them, he focuses on the one who loves. Now this is to emphasize, to give center stage to the importance of love. Whoever loves his brother in verse 9, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. When you are in Christ, everything changes. Lloyd-Jones writes that we are like new people in a new world. Nothing is the same as it was before. The Bible uses darkness to represent sin and pain and death. But to be in the light is life 
and joy and hope and peace. The one who loves others abides in the light. This is where they live. This is where they remain. We see this again and again in the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians 1, 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The one who loves others abides in the light. When we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And as a new creation, two things happen to us. We're given new vision and we're placed in a new realm. Our place of residence has changed from darkness to light, from this passing, fading, dying world to a heavenly kingdom. And we are also changed. Once we were blind, But now we see, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lloyd-Jones comments, he says, I am changed and I am in a new realm. I am a different person and I am a citizen of a different kingdom. Both things are true. Get that, both things are true. I'm not simply the man I was in a new kingdom. I am a new man in a new kingdom. This is reality for those who are in Christ. Now notice also that John says to the lover, in him There is no cause for stumbling. See that at the end of verse 10. There is no cause for stumbling. The one who walks in the light does not stumble, and he doesn't cause others to stumble. I remember early on in our marriage, Christine and I, that's our marriage, I didn't realize like that people like actually woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. I didn't know that was like a thing, but that's what my wife did. And what often happened unfortunately too many times, was she would get up, go to the bathroom, be coming back to bed, and I would hear something, and she would have stubbed her toe on something. So she's trying to make her way back to the bed in the dark, and she smashes her toe on the bedpost or whatever it is. When you're in the dark, you can't see, and you stumble. But when you're in the light, when you love others, this doesn't happen. This is what John is is talking about. The man who is in darkness and who is walking in darkness and whose mind is dark... They stumble both themselves and they stumble others. Everything causes him to stumble and he causes others to stumble. He is touchy, touchy and easily offended and he's constantly offending others. The hater constantly finds and makes trouble. They see problems everywhere. An innocent comment is seen as insulting. A mindless mistake is seen as intentional. Everything said and everything done opens the door for taking offense. This is, this is the state of mind, the vision of the hater. But the lover has no cause for stumbling in him. He is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. She is not arrogant or rude. The lover does not insist on her own way. She's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Does that sound familiar? These are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. The one who walks in the light loves others as Christ has loved us. Now, 
I've sat where you sat. I've sat under sermons that, that exhort us to love one another. I've read in God's Word that we are to love one another. This is no new commandment to you. It's an old commandment, one we've heard for a long time. We've heard from the beginning. Do not hate one another. Love one another. But when I hear this, I have a tendency that perhaps you can identify with. My mind goes in two directions at the same time. On the one hand, I think about whether or not I have major problems with anyone. Do I hate anyone? Is there anyone within our church that I always try to avoid? Anyone that I'm not on speaking terms with? Anyone that just causes my blood to boil? I think on that for about like two seconds. Like, no, no, I'm doing pretty good. Maybe another Christian did pop in your mind as you were thinking about that. And if so, you need to hear this command again, love one another. You need to go to them and reconcile with them. But for most, if not all of us, we run through the list of people in our church and we think about other Christians we know and think, you know, I'm doing pretty good at this loving one another stuff. Or we think, I really hope so-and-so is hearing this. Or we think, you know, this is such a good reminder from God to prepare us for those times where our love is going to be tested. All in all, we can hear this command, love one another, and think that it's not all that applicable for where we are right now because we're not too terrible at it. I don't really identify with the hater. I think I'm doing pretty good. So that's one place my mind will go. On the other hand, I hear a sermon about loving one another, and I think about how I might love those that I like better. I think this is probably where most of us ends up, and this is our greatest danger. So I ask you, do you only love those who, that you like? Do you only love those you like? We do want to apply God's word and respond. We do want to love others more faithfully. So who jumps to mind? Well, we think of our friends. We think about those who we spend time with, our families, the people that are close to us. Maybe they're the people in your small group. Maybe they live nearby. Either way, these are the people that you think, yes, yes, I want to love these people. Now, in one sense, if you're thinking this, that's wonderful. You should love these people. In another sense, this doesn't go nearly far enough. What a measly thing it is to only think about loving those that we like. The social claim that the gospel makes on our lives goes far beyond loving those we like. Jesus redefines both how we are to love and who we are to love. When our love is confined to loving those we like in the ways we want to love them, that's not Christian love. When our love, I'm going to say that again, when our love is confined to loving those we like in the ways we want to love them, that's not Christian love. That is self-love. We've taken this beautiful thing, love, and turned it into something that's about us. Many of us are familiar with the time recorded in Luke 10 when a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks how he might inherit eternal life. Jesus responds, asking the man, well, what does the law say? And the man replies with the two greatest commandments, Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commends the man. But the man wants to go one step further to feel good about himself. He asks, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds to him with a story, a story that you likely know. A man travels from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way he's robbed and he's beaten. He's left for dead. Two upstanding honorable men, they make their way by, and they go right by him. They pass on the other side, ignoring this man in desperate need. Then a Samaritan, one who has nothing to do with this man, one who is despised and disrespected, he comes and he takes care of all of this man's needs. 
Now, after telling the story, Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? That's all too clear. It was the merciful Samaritan. This is what it looks like to love one another. Loving those we like or who like us, it's not all that hard. And it isn't all that biblical. I read one author say recently, love that is only convenient and conditional is not love. To love is to go out of your way, to be inconvenienced like the Good Samaritan, to sacrifice for the sake of another. The world tells us that love is a feeling, but the Bible shows us something else. Love is not about the satisfaction of our emotions. Love is not about getting our love cup all filled up. It's not about only loving those we like. Love, it's a commitment. Love is about a loyalty. It's about giving of ourselves for the glory of God and for the good of others, even when it doesn't feel good. Christian love can be an uncomfortable love. Christian love can be an inconvenient love. Christian love costs us ourselves. We sacrifice our self-fulfillment for the fulfillment of others. Now, Jesus exemplified this love. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give, not to take. He came to die so that others might live. We are called to walk as he walked. So how can you know you have eternal life? John responds, do you love one another? Now, our culture, our world, they, they, they're okay with this idea of loving one another. But the form that this love takes far too often is tolerance. Tolerance. We should just accept one another. Accept and, and appreciate and applaud whatever decision one might make for their, for their own self-fulfillment. But this isn't biblical love. Tolerance is, is a measly, pathetic application of true love. So while the Beatles were onto something, they didn't get it all together right. They declared all you need is love, but for the Christian, we first need God because God is light. This reality must be the foundation for our call to love others. So we need God first, then we do need love, but we can't separate our need for love from our need for holiness. This uh, word that comes up, um, scandalon is the Greek word for, for the obstacle, the stum- that we stumble over, and in him is no cause for stumbling. So in one sense, love makes, carries no offense, and it will not be offensive. But on the other hand, truth, truth is offensive. Truth does carry with it offense. And we must walk in both truth and love. We must hold these things together. This call to love in isolation from a call to Christ, a call to holiness, they cannot be separated. We're to walk as he walked in how we love others. I just want to bring it, bring it down a little bit. So we're here gathered this morning. We're about to share lunch together. For me, the easy thing to do as I think about oh, loving, one, loving others, well, I can love my kids. They're going to need to be fed and taken care of. So I want to do that. And there are those like, people that they've got kids my age, and so it's just easy to hang out with them. They're going to understand. So I'm going to hang out with those people. So we can think about those that it's just most comfortable to love. But I just want to encourage you. We've got an opportunity to put this into practice in just a few minutes as we gather together for lunch. Love those who aren't like you. Love those maybe you've never even talked to. Reach out to those who, who have different interests. And it's not just a, an application point for half an hour from now. This is how we are to live our lives as those in Christ. 
we're to love one another, and we're to love one another selfishly. See, the world puts self at the center of love. That's not love. That's, it's selfishness. It's the distortion of reality. Those who walk in darkness love themselves and hate others. What God calls us to is a selflessness, a dying to ourselves, a sacrificial love that, that walks as Jesus walked, that dies to ourselves. Philippians 2 has been just a passage I've been going back to again and again over the past several months, so that we are consider the interests more important than our own. Consider the interests of others more important than our own. This is what we're called to do. This is what it looks like to be a Christian, because this is what Christ did, and we are to walk as he walked. So when we come to church, when we interact with others, when we're even thinking about who we're going to interact with, we want to consider the interests of others more important than our own. Perhaps that person that you don't get along with, you invite to the get-together that you're having, and you give them a place of honor, whatever that looks like in your context. Or perhaps it's you inviting someone from a different culture or a different country or who doesn't look like you or who's in a different season of life, invite them over to dinner. Show love for them. Be, be selfless. Love as Jesus loved. And what you're going to find as you do this, as you die to yourself, what you'll find is life. What you'll find is joy and peace and hope. Brothers and sisters, as Christ has loved you, let us love one another. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you for the way that you exemplified love. Thank you that no one loved as you loved, and you gave yourself for us. You gave yourself so that we might live. Lord, thank you for this church and the way they exemplify this love. Thank you for the the way that so many people sacrificially and uncomfortably pursue one another and love one another and care for one another. And Lord, I pray that we would just grow more and more as we express this love and commitment to one another. Thank you that it's not based on how we feel. Our call to love is not sentimentality. It's not, are we feeling good today or does this make me, this person make me feel good? But it's rooted in who you are and it's rooted in what you've done. So may we walk as you've walked, as we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.